we've been talking about the uncontrollable sin about coveting. And by way of review, we've kind of put a couple points to remember when we think about coveting. Number one, uh, coveting counts. It's Jesus that kind of put coveting to a place where it had been dismissed. People focused on behavior. And what Jesus did, he backed things up to let us know that it's not just important what we do. It's important what we think and feel. Uh, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So it's not just about what we do, it's about what we think and feel. And that is a higher standard. It's a higher bar to clear. He applied it to adultery. As you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Covenant counts and what it means that we have the challenge then of being needing to consider not only our actions, but the thoughts and attitudes that precede the actions. And I think you'll admit and agree that that's a higher standard. It's Jesus that ended up saying that coveting counts. And Paul ended up telling us something kind of, kind of shocking, actually, that coveting is uncontrollable. Uh, he says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, don't covet. Don't covet means don't want anything that your neighbor has. And he goes on. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. The more you try to control coveting in order to try to make God happy, especially regarding God in an Old Testament, Old Covenant perspective, it's actually going to end up producing the same things you're trying to control. So then it raises a question. Coveting counts and coveting is uncontrollable. So what do we do? How do we strike at the root of coveting? Somebody said, I really like the quote, for every thousand people, whacking away at the leaves of evil. There's one person striking at the root. What would it mean for us to strike at the root of coveting, to be able to engage it in an effective manner? And we talked about five things that we're going to consider in order to try to get our arms around with how we manage it. And number one is be real. Secondly, be still. That's what we'll talk about today. Third, we'll talk about next week is speak freely. Fourth, wait perseveringly. Five, Respond gently. These are kind of in order, it seems. We began with be real. It's logical to have second thoughts about being honest with God. The Old Testament gives us really thousands of reasons to be wary of being honest with God. If you read through the Old Testament, hundreds of thousands of people died. And that creates a pause within us about how safe is it really to be honest with God? Why can be we be why can we trust God enough to be real about our resentment and rebelliousness? The new covenant changes the ground rules that God operates by. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Old Testament is dominated by the Old Covenant. And the New Testament is is grounded in the new covenant. So God doesn't change in the Bible. The covenant that he operates by 
changes. And that's important for us because God promises to be Helios to our unrighteousnesses. And that's what he wants us to believe, that he is cheerful, benevolent, and merciful. And when we come to him with thoughts and feelings and are real with him, what we are to believe, because God operates by a new covenant, is that he's not going to condemn those things. We don't have to withdraw from him, and that becomes important. We saw last week, and just by way of review, there's a verse that says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It goes to say, what, what is the, this is the verdict. The verdict is the judgment, and it's the God being a judge, setting down the, his assessment. And would you agree that if you're going to stand before a judge, and the judge has rendered a verdict, that if you were probably pretty interested in that verdict, because if you're going to stand, so what is it that God judges? If he judges both behavior and attitude, but he's not condemning, look what it says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Here's the question. That person in verse 20, we talked about this last week. This is by way of review. The person who will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What's that person's problem? Is it a behavior problem? Or is it a belief problem? Would you agree with me that that's a pretty important question? Is it a behavior problem or a belief problem? Well, you could say, well, there must be a behavior problem because he's done things wrong. But what it suggests is that it's a belief problem because the fact is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And here's a person who is withdrawing back into the darkness. He won't come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What is he assuming? He's assuming that he comes into the light, that God's going to expose his deed and say, there, I knew it. And that's a belief issue, because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And what we're to believe, well, if we believe that, how would it affect us? It's a good question, isn't it? If we believed it. It seems, to the degree we believe it, we can be real about thoughts and struggles and come into God's presence, because the fact is he promised us that he does not condemn us. And that's what we, by way of review, um, there are troubled thoughts and feelings hardwired within us, apparently. If we're real with ourselves, we're going to have to admit that we have a problem with a, re a resentful spirit. And we have problems with a re rebellious heart. And I'm not just pointing at you. It's all of us. Look what the Bible says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and cover, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? You know what the deal is with you and me? When we don't get what we want, we resent it. And you might say, well, I don't want to admit that. Well, 
God's not going to condemn it. It's real. And it's something that apparently we're going to deal with. We're going to have to deal with a resentful spirit. Not only that, but Paul goes not to talk about a rebellious heart. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But in the members of, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What it says about us is that part of us is responsive to God and part of us is not. So when we come to God and say to him, I'm totally yours, I'm single-hearted, that's not really the truth. And why can't we tell the truth to him? And that's what the challenge is, it seems. Um, the conflict between us in the world, we might ask, why is there so much strife and quarreling and fighting in the world? That's what James asks in this question. Apparently the problem is the fighting between us, it really comes from the fighting within us. We want something and don't get it, and we fight and we resent and so and that's the cause of the fights and quarrels among us. Here's the real question with respect to be real, and then we'll move on to be still. Do we trust God enough to be real with him? about the things we feel inside. Would you agree with me? I think most of us grew up in a way that we didn't learn to trust God about being honest with things. I didn't. It's an ongoing thing, not anything that we can accomplish, but it's something that he would have us move towards. And that's why when you come and we say, keep coming back, we'll continue to talk about God's lack of condemnation week after week after week after week, because little by little, your mind thinks and shifts about what you think about God. And as your mind shifts, you'll find yourself little by little being able to be a little more honest and a little more authentic with God. And as you're more honest and authentic with God, you're more real with Him. You know what God does? That's what I want. That's what I want. I want you to be honest. I want you to trust me enough to say true things to me. Real things, not right things. That's what God wants. He wants us to be real. He also wants us to be still. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still is the translation of a Hebrew word that is really a body posture. I'm going to ask you to have done this before. Some of you know this is coming. Rafa. Rafa. Here's what Rafa means in Hebrew. I want you to take your hands and I want you to get books out of your hands. And this is what I want you to do. It'll feel really odd. I really want you to try it. Let your arms hang limp at your side. Go ahead. Shake your arms, shake your arms, let your arms hang limp at your side. Just limp, just let them stay there. Does this feel as weird to you as it feels to me? Not to be dialing anything, clutching anything, poking something, holding something. This is what Rafa means. Okay, you can, you can stop doing that. Um, that's what it means to be still. Um, and in the context, in response to social disasters, climate change, what God says, be still, let your arms hang limp at your side. It's This is a very unnatural thing. 
when we are confronted with things that are troubling, our natural response is not to be real and be still. Our natural response is to get busy. There is a time when in Israel, they were confronted by an enemy. Here's what happened. And you looked at in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defenses. And so what ends up happening, the Assyrians are moving towards that already conquered 42 cities and they're moving towards Jerusalem. And people looked at the wall and they said, holy smokes, this wall is not going to repel anything. And so what did they end up doing is he said, okay, so you stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down the houses to strengthen the wall. You built the reservoir between the two walls. It's just me being tiring me to even say it. They, they do all these things, all these improvements. And then here's what it says. But you didn't look to the one who made it or have regard to the one who planned it long ago. You did all these things. You got busy, but you never got to the place where you were able to be still and talk to the one who built the city and talk to him about protecting it. What ended up happening, Isaiah ended up talking to the king, Hezekiah, and telling him what was going to happen. Hezekiah, for whatever the reason, had the presence of mind to pause and to go to God and to say, God, they are coming and no one's been able to withstand them. I'm not sure what we're going to do. Here's what happened. Um, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. By the way he came, he will not return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. They put them to death. What ended up happening? A couple individuals, they were besieged. And so a couple individuals went out. They said, well, I guess we're going to have to face this sometime. Let's go out and face it. And so they went out through the wall. And what had happened, and historically what we hear, is there was a plague. And the plague decimated the Assyrian army. And what happened in response to be still did not happen in response to elbow grease, tearing down the walls. Now, there's things that we have to do, so that's not the only thing. But with respect to five things that we do when we're challenged, we learn to be real. And then we learn to be still there's a couple reasons why, when you're threatened, you'll let your arms hang limp at your side. Really, two. The number one reason is there's no way to defend yourself. Here's what it says in the Bible. The people will cry out, all who dwell in the land will wail at the sound of the hooves of galloping steeds, at the noise of enemy chariots and the rumble of the wheels. And it's talking about at a future time when Babylon is going to be the kingdom rather than Assyria, and it's going to attack Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to fall. Now, here's what it says. Fathers will not turn to help their children. Their hands will rafa. Their, their arms will hang limp. And why do the arms of the fathers hang limp? It's because there's no way they can defend themselves. There's an army coming, and one reason to rafa is when there's no way to defend yourself. You say, I could fight, but I... I. That's one reason. There's a second reason why you might let your arms hang limp at your side. Not because there's no way to defend yourself. Because there's no need. 
If you're confronted by an army and someone is with you who is stronger than the army that confronts you, you can afford to let your arms hang limp at your side. Here's what it says on that day. They will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Do not rafa. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. In the context of threatening events, here's what the Bible says. Rafa. Be still. Know that I am God. I am going to be exalted in the nations. And I'm going to be exalted on the earth. And so when you're threatened, what God would have us develop, this is unnatural. It's natural to use elbow grease. It's not natural to slow down. All of us, we. this is challenging for us. All of us. And this is what God says. Move in the direction of being real and being still. Um, reflect on God's greatness. He says, I will be exalted in the nations and on the earth. What God says is my will is going to be accomplished despite who's in office, despite what's happening over in Russia. That doesn't mean we don't get concerned. It means ultimately nothing is going to be able to frustrate God's purposes. It's not going to be frustrated if we struggle. Nothing can frustrate God's purposes. It's reflect on God's greatness that he's sovereign, he's in control. In the end, guess who wins? God wins in the end. Nothing that seems to be a threat to him is going to pose a threat, ultimately. Not only to think about God's greatness, think about his goodness. His greatness, God has really wide shoulders. You're not going to crush him by your concerns. Not only does God have big shoulders, God has a big heart. So reflect on his greatness and his goodness. Remember that prayer, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food? There's some good theology in that. God is great, God is good. Think about his greatness. He says, be still, I'm going to be exalted in the nations and on the earth. Don't only be be focused on his greatness, though. focus on his goodness. Here's what it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Says so God makes two promises, never will I leave you. What leave means, here's, here's what it means, I want you to picture, there's a river, and there's a boat tied to a dock. And somebody, for whatever the reason, the river's flowing, there's a current, and nobody would do this, but let's say you see this person, you're walking, you know, you're driving by, and this person, there's a boat tied to a dock, and he unties it. What's going to happen if the river has a current, you untie the boat, what's going to happen? It's going to get caught in the current, and it's going to be drawn downstream. What's going to happen to it? You have no control over what happens to it. You know what it's saying? God will never do that to you. He will never untie you from being under his protection so that you drift on the river of fate to an uncertain future. He says, I will never, no, never untie you 
so that you are at the mercy of fate. That's what he promises. I will never leave you. And he says, I will never forsake you. Here's the image for forsake. Let's say you are drawn out into a difficult place to confront things that are very difficult and you get wounded or you get exhausted out there and people pull away from you so that not only are you wounded or exhausted, now all the people that you depend on to be with you in that place, to protect you, to be with you, to associate, they're all moving away. And then you not only are you wounded, you're all alone. But God says, I will never do that to you. I will never, no, never leave you in a place where you are endangered or confronted, but without, I will always be by your side. It's what we talked about when we talked about the peace sign, the victory sign. It's what Jesus was aware of when he talked to the disciples and says, you guys, can't you stay up with me for an hour? When he was praying and really under stress, he was feeling the things and he says, you're going to leave me all alone. And he says, yet, I am not alone. My Father is with me. That's the thing that he wants us to grab. That's, that's what's at the heart of be still. God will never leave you alone. He will never untie you so that you'll be cast adrift. He will never withdraw from you so you'll be at the mercy alone, unattended. Um, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's interesting. Money makes God-like claims. Why it says, let your lives be free from the love of money? Because money and God make the same promises. What money says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. If you have enough of me, you'll always be tender. You'll never be alone. You'll never be cast adrift. You'll never be left behind. That's what money promises. What God says, I will never leave you and forsake you. You will never be cast or drift. You will never be left behind. The problem is that both of them claim to do the same things, but only one of them can keep that promise, and it's not money. Not money. So what we're encouraged, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. How in the world am I going to be content with what I have? I want you to tune in a promise then. I want you to think about your checkbook and what isn't in it that you'd like to, to be in it. The resources that you'd like to have and don't have. And you're not protected against an uncertain future. Some of you might be, but many of you are not. Things could happen that could leave you or leave you alone. Money says, ah, don't worry about it. I'll never leave you and forsake you. Money can't keep that promise, and we know that. God makes the same promise. He says, I will never leave you and forsake you, even in spite of the fact that there might not be everything in your checkbook that you'd like to be there. You know what God says to you? Well, you know now, don't you? I will never cast you adrift. I will never cast you adrift. I will never leave you behind. What that means, simplify. That's what a Marine says. Isn't that right, John? Isn't that right? Simplify, always faithful. A Marine will not leave another Marine on the field of battle. That's what he says to you. Simplify. 
God is faithful. Um, when we are threatened, what God wants us to do is learn to adjust our gaze and our glance. Don't not look at the problems. Glance at them. You have to look at things. Be real. Be still, though. Glance at the problem and gaze at God. If you wouldn't get engaged at God, what would you gaze at? You could be real about what you're threatened by. We've talked about two things. And I would say dial these in and try to dial them in daily. Now, I don't dial them in daily, but I'm doing better. But it's what we're to focus on. What will we focus on? Focus on promises. Learn to think about the fact, God, I feel troubled. Be real with them. I feel anxious about my future. I'm not sure if Tyler or Lily, you know, your future is out there and you might have some concerns. It doesn't mean try to get those concerns out of your head. Be honest about them. And I like the future, but I'm a little bit concerned. Don't just think about the future. Think about what God is. Is what he's saying? I really believe this. Lily, and for all of us, but you guys, I will never cast you adrift. I will never leave you behind. Not just you guys, to all of us. And what he wants us to do is to believe it, because then we'll be able to be real and we'll learn to be still. That takes practice. And then we'll be able to speak freely. Let's stand. We'll talk about that next week. Let's stand for closing prayer. Uh, thanks for promises that are bulletproof. You say you will never leave us or forsake us. It doesn't mean we're not going to be put in situations that are concerning. It means that in the final analysis, we're not going to be cast adrift and we're not going to be alone. I'd ask that we would root our faith in it little by little. It's hard for us to remember this. It's easy. Elbow grease is easy. Being still is hard. I'd ask that you would help us little by little to be able to tune your promises in. It's not all or nothing, but just little by little. I pray that we'd keep coming back to these promises and keep coming back to them and keep coming back to them and keep coming back to them so that they could filter into our thinking and become a little bit more close to us as the years go by. In Jesus' name, amen.